The reading this morning is from Luke chapter 21 and verses 5 to 19, and it's on page 1056 of the Church Bibles. Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they're about to take place? He replied, watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and uprisings, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines and pestilences in various places and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will seize you and persecute you. They will hand you over to synagogues and put you in prison. And you will be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. And so you will bear testimony to me. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves. For I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers and sisters, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stand firm and you will win life. Julie, that's a cheery reading, wasn't it? If you want to pep the troops up just before you're going to leave them, why would you say that? Those are the words that Jesus spoke to his followers just a few hours before he was arrested, just a few hours before he was put to death. Now, he does then go into the upper room, and he does celebrate the Last Supper with his disciples. He does speak John 14, John 15, John 16, and John 17 to them, which are more reassuring and comforting words. But why did Jesus speak in that way to his followers at that time when he knew that they would be some of the last words that he would ever speak to his friends and followers who'd been with him for three years. Well, over the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing in our sermon series is looking at how our faith interacts with our culture and with our society. And also the way in which our culture and our society, the nation and the city in which we live, interacts and shapes how we think about our faith. Because the reality is that the two are interconnected and the two do have an impact upon one another. And in the run-up to Advent, Facebook told me on Friday that there are 17 Fridays between now and Christmas. That's a freebie, you get that for nothing. Um, Then we're going to look at what does it mean to be a Christian 
in Scotland, in the UK, in 2019, in the face of Brexit, in the face of everything that's happening around us, what is God saying to us now? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's spoken to people down the centuries and it's spoken hope and it's spoken life and it's spoken peace. And we're asking, Holy Spirit, for you to apply your word into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives today, that you might help us to love you more, to follow you more closely, and to, to live lives that are salt and light in our society, in our city, in our culture, that so desperately needs you. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to read to you some words written by the former chief rabbi, Jonathan Sachs. Jonathan Sachs said this. He said, there are moments in history, and we are living through one now, when something new is taking shape, but we do not know precisely what. The results lie all around us. The collapse of marriage, the fracturing of the family, the fraying of the social bond, the partisanship of politics at a time when national interest demands something larger, the loss of trust in public institutions, the build-up of debt whose burden will fall on future generations, and the failure of a shared morality to lift us out of the morass of individualism, hedonism, consumerism, and relativism. We know these things, yet we seem collectively powerless to move beyond them. Now, Jonathan Sachs wrote those words in January 2014. He wrote those words, he made that observation before Brexit. He made that observation before the vote on Scottish independence. He made those observations before President Trump. He made those observations before Prime Minister Johnson. Imagine what Jonathan Sachs would write now. Collapse of the marriage, fracturing of family, the fraying of the social bond, partisanship of politics, loss of trust in public institutions, the build-up of debt, and the failure of a shared morality. I went to see a comedy show with uh, Josh, my eldest, and his wife, Freya, a couple of weeks ago. And basically, the whole hour-long comedy show was, how have we ended up in this mess? And basically, the comedian, Matt Ford, just recycled old speeches from politicians from the last eight years. It wasn't a particularly uplifting evening. <laughs> and most of us came out, the audience, going, yeah, how did we end up? in this situation. Now the reality is that over the last 50 years or so, we've been going through a major seismic shift. For the last 250 years, most people in the West, most people in our culture, in our society, have been conditioned to think that things are getting better. Through the ideas that came out of the Enlightenment, progress became a thing. As in the words of Immanuel Kant, humankind's emergence from self-incurred immaturity began to shape how we thought and lived. And we have to own it and say that Scotland has been very much at the forefront of 
the Enlightenment. People like um, Adam Smith and David Hume and uh, a group in Edinburgh called the Select Society joined with other thinkers across Europe like Voltaire, Comte, Rousseau and others. And this whole idea of the Enlightenment came about. That as human beings we're getting better and better and better and better. That as a society, as a culture, we can know more, we can do more, we can travel further, we can go faster, we can achieve more. In fact, we can achieve everything that we want. Science literally proclaims to infinity and beyond. There's a reason why Buzz Lightyear has that catchphrase. Because that sums up the catchphrase of science, of progress, of modernism to infinity and beyond. 25, 26 years ago, Radio One, which is a sub radio station that I used to listen to 25, 26 years ago, actually ran a science week. And the strap line of the science week that Radio One was this, science is the answer. Doesn't matter what the question is, science is the answer. And that characterized modernity, the whole way in which the Western world thought we could do more, we could achieve more, we could get better, we can know more, and therefore we can improve the world. And there have been lots of improvements around the world. David Deutsch, who's a professor of physics at Oxford, summed up how many people have felt over the last 250 years. He said this, everything that is not forbidden by laws of nature is achievable given the right knowledge. Just think about those words. Everything that is not against the laws of nature is achievable given the right knowledge. So for 250 years, we thought that as human beings, as societies, as cultures, in the West, we were getting better and better and better and better. We can do more, we can do more, we can do more, we can know more, we can know more, and it's infinity and beyond. Well, if that's the case, how have we ended up in 2019 with five global crises? Political, social, religious, environmental, and economic. All of a sudden, over the past 25 years, suddenly the bubble has been burst. There have been a few events that have punctured that bubble of modernity. The Challenger disaster. That iconic image with the space shuttle going up to meet the space station and just a few seconds after blast-off, sadly, tragically, just bursting into flames and exploding. All of a sudden, science was the problem, not the answer. And then a few years after the Challenger disaster came the tragic and iconic pictures that many of us watched on 9-11. Never forget being in um, Ainsley Park Leisure Centre. We're taking Josh uh, and Nathan swimming, and these images appearing on the television screens on that Tuesday, September afternoon. Eventually, the manager of the 
leisure centre went and turned all the TVs off because they realised that there were so many children under the age of five and they shouldn't be watching these images. All of a sudden, America, who felt so powerful, now wasn't so invincible. A new world order came into being. People that we'd never heard of, like Al-Qaeda and ISIS, suddenly became household names. And then in 2008 came the economic crash. Images of people taking boxes as they were dismissed from their jobs. And all of the trust, all of the institutions that we thought were untouchable, like the Royal Bank of Scotland, all of a sudden threatened. People before 2008, hugely proud in Edinburgh of working for RBS or HBOS or Standard Life, but suddenly it became almost like being a second-hand car salesman. You work for who? Um, RBS, <coughs> HBOS. Because suddenly the ground moved from underneath us. Suddenly all the things that we'd taken for granted suddenly were shaken. Challenger, 9-11. 2008. And the reality is that you and I live in the West, in the UK, in Scotland, in Edinburgh, in a society which has never felt more fearful and never felt more anxious. More uncertain as to what is going on. One in four 16-year-olds now diagnosed as clinically depressed. In this city, in this nation, at this time. Now, there are many and very different causes for that, but that is the reality of the world that you and I live in. And so, in the last eight or ten years, people have started to look back. Look back to a past that was different. Look back to a past that was better. A past, perhaps, when Britannia did rule the waves, or America really was great. And that yearning perhaps partly explains Brexit and President Trump. And if we're honest, those of us within the church have often struggled to adjust as well. Things that we'd taken as givens for hundreds, if not thousands of years, have suddenly gone. And the church now finds itself, rather than being in a position of power or influence, Many people would now say that the church finds itself on the edge of society, marginalised. Perhaps some people say where it does its best work and actually where it should be, rather than in the positions of power and influence. And for those of us who've grown up through modernity, this is a really confusing time. I was walking home with Josh and Freya after that comedy show, and we were talking about politics, we were talking about Trump, we were talking about Boris Johnson, we were talking about Brexit, and eventually Josh just stopped me and said, Dad, the difference is, you and I were brought up to think that this is just a blip. You and I were born and brought up to think that somehow what we're seeing now is abnormal, it's a blip. And one day, things will go back to once they were. But Josh said, what if they don't? 
What if this is the new normal? What if this isn't a blip? What if this isn't an aberration? This is just how things are. And the penny dropped for me that the stuff that we talked about 25, 30 years ago, this idea of post-modernity, that we were now living in it. And that's where you and I find ourselves. In troubled times, uncertain times. Now the time that Jesus lived in was also one of crisis. Why does Jesus speak in that way to his followers in Luke 21, Matthew 24, in the way that he does? Well, politically, first century Palestine, Judea, Israel, different factions jostled for influence. Herod the Great's three sons had divided the land up between them. They carved it up. The chief priests were struggling to retain control over the people. That's why they were so anxious, so nervous about Jesus and his teaching and his claim to be a king and his claim to be the Messiah. The economy of first century Palestine and Judea was also in deep, deep trouble. People were being incredibly heavily taxed, particularly the poor. That's perhaps why Jesus spoke so much about money. Two-thirds of his parables of his stories were about money and debt. Why? One of the reasons, perhaps, is because the people that he was speaking to were heavily in debt were heavily taxed. They knew what it was to owe much, all of them, because of the demands that were being made upon them. And at the same time, the people that Jesus was speaking to, the people that Jesus was talking to, the people who lived in Galilee and Nazareth and Jerusalem, they had one hope. They had one dream. That God would still come through for his people. That all the promises that they'd heard about, even though God had been silent for hundreds of years, that God would still come through for his chosen people. That he would redeem, that he would rescue Israel. That things would go back to how they once were. And there at the centre of the capital city of Jerusalem, stood one of the great symbols of nationhood and the Jewish world. Along with the land and the law, the temple was the national icon. Now, when we think of the temple in Jerusalem, we think perhaps of a church, somewhere where people worshipped. Well, the temple in Jerusalem was so much more than this. In London terms, it was a combination of St. Paul's Cathedral, Westminster Abbey, the London Stock Exchange, the Houses of Parliament, Covent Garden, and Buckingham Palace. In Edinburgh terms, it was a mixture of St. Giles Cathedral, Edinburgh Castle, Holyrood Palace, the Scottish Parliament, the Usher Hall, Murrayfield, and the headquarters of the Royal Bank of Scotland. All in one building. So everything that symbolised the power and the wealth and the, the majesty of Israel was in this one building. And also the temple, the Jews believed at that time, 
had one important function. The temple was where God lived. If you wanted to meet God, you went to this temple. If you wanted to make offerings, you went to this temple. If you wanted your sins forgiven, you went to this temple. If you want cleansing, you went to this temple. This temple meant everything to the people of first century Jerusalem. It was the symbol of Israel's beliefs and hopes, past, present, and future. At the time that Jesus speaks in Luke 21, it is 50 years into a building project that would last nearly 80. Now, some of us this morning, we know a thing or two about building projects. And ours felt long to us. This was nothing compared to the building project on this first century temple. It lasted nearly 80 years. At the time that Jesus is speaking in AD 33, as I say, it's about 50 years in. It started in BC 20, it goes up to AD 64. Millions of pounds, the equivalent, are being spent on this temple. It's like going to Barcelona and the, is it the Sagrada Familia, is that the name of it? The, the cathedral in Barcelona, if you've been to it, just a stunning building. It's not finished. You walk around in each corner going, wow, that's, wow, that's amazing. And then you come to one bit, and the guide, when we went a couple of years ago, the guide said, oh, yes, this bit here, they're just spending £5 million on this bit, just getting it right. Imagine if I came to you next Sunday and said, this bit where Steve Best is sitting, Steve's not very happy. Steve wants it to be nicer, so we're going to make a, a sort of a throne around Steve and Sally and have some lights and maybe a jacuzzi for Steve and Sally so that when they come and sit there, it's that. That's the scale of what's going on in this temple in first century Jerusalem. This is mind-blowing in the context of a society where people are incredibly taxed and in debt. But the boys from the north come down with Jesus into Jerusalem. Maybe it's the first time they've ever been to Jerusalem. Maybe it's the first time that they've seen these latest building works. And that's why perhaps in Luke 21 and verse 5 it says, Some of his disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. They hadn't seen it before. And they're walking around this temple going, this is amazing. Have you seen what they've spent on that? Yeah, and Judas is going, yeah, have you seen what they've spent on that? This is just unbelievable. And then Jesus takes their breath away. Because Jesus says this, as for what you see here, verse 6, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Now, in John's Gospel, Jesus actually says, I'm the temple. He's the temple. He says, if you knock down this temple, it will be raised again in three days. And what Jesus is saying is, you want forgiveness? You want sacrifices to be offered? You want cleansing? You want a place where people can celebrate the restoration of hope? It's not to be found in these stones to be found in me. And the disciples really struggled to understand. I mean, 
can you imagine if you woke up tomorrow morning, Edinburgh Castle, gone. Holyrood Palace, gone. Usher Hall, gone. Scottish Parliament Building, gone. Most devastating of all, Murrayfield, gone. Just raised off the, off the, the face of the earth. And that's what Jesus says will happen to this temple. This thing that was a symbol of national pride and all their hopes, past, present and future, would be gone. And Jesus says, I am the replacement for the temple. I'm the one who will bring cleansing, forgiveness of sins, make restoration possible, and I will be the sacrifice. Rather than God living in a temple made of bricks and mortar, God himself would come and live amongst us. And Jesus links the destruction of the temple with when history will be wound up, with the end of all things. And he says to them, there will be wars and rumours of wars. Nation will rise against nation. Kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes. There will be famine. There will be pestilence. Some of you in the church, you'll be betrayed by family members, brothers and sisters. Some of you will be executed. Some of you will be put in front of people and, and you'll be terrified. You'll be handed over and betrayed because of me. It is one, you know, how to whip the troops up. Really encouraging half-time talk. But Jesus says these things are going to happen. Now what Jesus is describing are characteristics between his first coming and his second coming. He's not outlining a countdown. That's the mistake that hundreds, thousands, if not millions of Christians have made over the past 2,000 years. He is not saying the clock is ticking and all these things are going to start happening and things are going to get worse the nearer it gets to me returning. He's just describing the characteristics of the time between his first coming and his second coming. It's a bit like saying to Paul, what are the characteristics of a Scottish summer. And Paul has discovered that the characteristics of a Scottish summer are sun, rain, midges, and the har, the mist that comes in off the fourth. Now, those are characteristics of a Scottish summer. Sun, and in rain, midges, and the har. And depending on the year, they vary. Sometimes there's more sun, sometimes there's more rain, there's always more midges, and the har comes. But it doesn't get worse as, well maybe it does get worse, um, it doesn't get worse the nearer you get. There's not more har or, or, well there is more rain, that analogy breaks down, forget that one. Um, but it's just the characteristic of a Scottish summer. And Jesus is saying the characteristics of the time between my first coming and my second coming, there will be wars and rumours of wars. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be famine, there'll be pestilence, there'll be earthquakes. The, the church, you're going to be betrayed, you're going to be persecuted. People will hand you over to prison. Some of you are going to die. But do you see what Jesus says in verse 15? He promises words and wisdom. 
But he also says this in verse 40. He says, but make your mind up not to worry beforehand. Why do you think Jesus quite deliberately used that phrase? But you, make your mind up not to worry beforehand. He knows that they're afraid. He knows that they're terrified. He knows that they're uncertain. He knows that they're unsure. He knows what's about to happen to them. But Jesus says, but you make your mind up beforehand not to worry. We live in a very confusing time. We live in a very confusing culture. We live in a society that is characterized by anxiety and fear and uncertainty. Jesus said to his followers in first century Jerusalem, and he says to his followers in 21st century Edinburgh, but you make up your mind beforehand not to worry. It doesn't matter what's going on around you, whether it's earthquakes, whether it's famine, whether it's pestilence, whether it's persecution, whether it's imprisonment, whether it's betrayal, whether it's Brexit, whether it's another independence referendum, whether it's the stock market going up or whether it's the stock market going down, whether it is increased anxiety and stress, people wondering what's happening on social media, the fear of missing out, FOMO, all sorts of things going on in people's view of themselves and their view of the world, their distrust of politics, their distrust of institutions, Jesus says, you, my followers, make your mind up not to worry and make your mind up beforehand. And he leaves us perhaps with three questions this morning. Firstly, in the middle of a whirlwind, when things seem out of control, are we prepared to trust that God knows what he's doing? that things might be confusing economically. Things might be confusing and terrifying to do with the environment. And whether it's socially or politically or spiritually or climate emergency or climate change, however you phrase it, are we willing to trust that God is still in control? Secondly, surrounded by change and uncertainty, are we willing to stay faithful to God and be people of peace, love, faith and hope in a culture that is characterised by anxiety and stress? What a difference the church of Jesus Christ could make in our nation if we were people of hope, if we were people of peace, if we were people of love, if we were people of faith, in a city, in a nation, in a culture that is increasingly fearful and anxious and stressed. And then thirdly and finally, are we as a church in a situation in a context in which we're increasingly marginalized and losing influence and status, are we prepared to wait and pray and be prophetic and be the people that God wants us to be, even though it's costly? We are in the eye of a storm. There is tumult and crisis all around us. 
many people are thinking, how did we end up in this mess? Are we as people of faith willing to say that we're trusting God? Are we as people of faith willing to say that we do know someone who's in charge, even though at times it's really, really difficult to understand what he's doing? It might be on a global scale, it might be on a national scale, it might be on a city-wide scale, it might be something in your personal life that at the moment you just feel as though things are out of control. God's challenge to you and to me this morning is, are you willing to trust? Are you willing to believe? Are you willing to hope? And are you willing to live a life of peace, faith, love and hope? in such a way that you give a reason for the hope that lies within you. That's what we're called to be as Christians, Christ followers. We're called to be people who are able to give a reason for the hope, the conviction that lies within us. And that hope that lies within us is the resurrection from the dead of Jesus Christ. And that changes everything. It changes how we view life and it changes how we view death changes how we view ourselves and it changes how we view other people it changes how we view creation 